Welcome to the Payroll Podcast, the show that explores the latest insights and innovations in the world of payroll. I'm Nick Day, founder of JGA Recruitment, a specialist global payroll search firm. I'm also a qualified executive coach and a recognized Reward 300 member. And my goal for this show is clear, is to bring you expert guests and payroll leaders who are driving this industry forward. From cutting edge technologies and trends to compliance, analytics, automation, leadership strategies, and more, we're gonna cover it all on this show to help you to deliver accurate and timely payrolls across your organizations. So let's join together in raising the strategic profile of payroll worldwide. Grab your coffee or your favorite beverage and let's get started. Hello everyone and welcome back to today's edition, July's edition of Payroll Question Time. This is our summer edition because we don't have an August episode. We won't be back until the end of September. Today's discussion topics, we're going to be talking about the work-life balance, so paternity leave, dependent leave and flexible working. We're going to be talking about car allowance deductions and class NI. We're going to talk about HMRC and PAYE deadlines and support holiday periods and how to manage them as we go into the summer months. The SD Works Academy, including a holiday masterclass, and there'll be some links to that as well. A pensions update from Andy and any hot topics in Q&A if we get to it. But before all of that, we're going to launch our first poll today, which is a family focused payroll policies poll. The question is, how is your organization adapting to payroll and leave policies to accommodate evolving family needs? Now, for those in audio only, the answers or options are currently reviewing policies, enhancing dependent carers or neonatal leave provisions, increasing flexibility in working arrangements, no changes planned at the moment, or other? It looks like we've got uh, 31% say they're currently reviewing policies, 19% say they have enhanced dependent care, neonatal leave provisions, uh, 20% increasing flexibility in working arrangements, 27% no change planned at the moment, and there's a 3% other. So um, I don't know, do you, do you want to provide some thoughts there, Richard? Yeah. Um... I think a lot of what's going on at the moment is still in consultation, uh, which could, I guess, give the reasons for the the changes aren't being considered. Um, But there is certainly going to be, you know, quite a chunk of review going forward. We've had a number of consultations. uh, We've had a couple of um, government re-evaluations, especially around change. Um, So applicably, we're already seeing um the paternity leave moved quite far forward already prior to any sort of decisions made but i think probably the bigger one is going to be shared um and how that's adapted moving forward and then obviously the new neonatal leave uh the carers leave and obviously the neonatal leave and pay so i think there's quite a lot out there and quite a lot to happen i guess it's where people are in respect that we don't have legislative guidance even though a lot of this has now had royal assent and what about simon whenever we look at these um figures i mean enhanced dependent carers already there 19 percent increasing flexibility and working arrangement is 20 percent and perhaps the no changes are planned because maybe um some organizations already have um good policies in place and at the moment they're just waiting to hear what changes i mean whenever we look back to um the last three years in payroll in particular and for hr as well employees are wanting benefits so some of these categories come under benefits and they could be 
and what they ask their employer to provide for them to enhance them to go to join another business. Now, I'm just thinking, uh, if COVID hadn't come along, would it be as advanced or has that been a driver in people deciding that, uh, because I'm thinking uh, flexible employment arrangements for family were considered as quite a perk some years ago, probably more for various types of worker, whereas I think COVID thrust us all into a regime of homeschooling, uh, no dependent or no care for youngsters or nursery etc and we all had to change our arrangements work from home in some industries so i'm thinking increasingly as you're probably suggesting there lou uh, it's now considered by a, a larger proportion of the workforce as an expectation of having family uh, friendly policies in the workplace yeah but, absolutely I, I agree and I, I certainly i've certainly revisited how I go out and recruit looking for payroll professionals for the team I work in and because I'm interested in getting the best person for the job and if that means then saying agreeing to a work from home contract um, and allowing team members flexibility that's important if I want to get the right person and I'm sure other businesses have had to adapt and change the way that they think and based on the fact that we have demonstrated so well that we can, for a lot of jobs, work from home successfully. Mm -hmm. Now, I think there have been two recent um, uh, parliamentary changes or proposals or or uh, things passed that are progressing that will impact us in the payroll uh, application industry and HR. And uh, I th I'm thinking one of them is the announcement on extension on paternity pay flexibilities maybe it's not a major element and the other is the employment relations flexible working act 2023 do you have anything you can share with us richard on either of those oh the paternity absolutely so the principal change that they're looking to bring in firstly uh oh sorry doggy that's not me um principally <laughs> looking to uh expand from the current one or two weeks consecutively uh, to one or two weeks uh, separately. Um, also then obviously the extension of time. So going from what is currently 56 days uh, to I believe a year or the, the full maternity period. Um, so they're the critical change. I know uh, from what was happening in 2019 that that may not be the end of it. Um, there was certainly a view on the payment um because obviously in in principle as a as the partner can you afford to take those two weeks if your employer only pays you statutory and the answer is often no um and which would mean therefore that the um, father or partner would actually take holiday i know there was a, a view or a possible view of actually increasing paternity pay to possibly the same as high rate maternity for instance so I don't think we're at the end of it. I think what they're trying to do is at the moment just increase flexibility. And if you read the consultation, it's all about, I guess, ensuring the father has more options to be more involved um, at, a, at the early points of, of the child's life. So I think that's quite a critical thing uh, and quite a big change in that respect. We've, we've certainly had a number of our uh, client employers wanting mm. to have implemented more flexible operation of SPP 
However, SPP is not flexible to the extent no. that I think, as Richard's saying, it has to be taken in a block of one or two weeks. It can't be taken in a block of one, come into work for a couple of months and take another. And some employers have probably been of the view that's what they want to do. But at the moment, that's not allowed under the regulations under a statutory payment. If an employer wants to pay it, fine, but you can't claim that back from the government. Whereas this sort of brings in that flexibility. But this is set, I think, from memory, uh, Richard Liu, in April 25, the proposal. So it's not even, so although it's been announced, I think it's a little way off, but I might be wrong there. No, I think you're right because I think it's the same with the neonatal leave and pay, isn't it? It's obviously not going to be that quick, um, especially with that one um, on the grounds that there's quite a lot to think about. Um, because obviously, with neonatal leave and pay, you're suddenly in a world where you're affecting maternity, e.g., maternity pay, and maternity leave, which nothing else usually does. Um, but there could be a scenario, for instance, where a lady goes on neonatal leave and pay. That actually runs past the EWC. So, how's that going to be treated, for instance, um, and vice versa? They've started their maternity. They've now, are they going to then go to neonatal leave and pay and come back? I think there's quite a lot that sits behind that one um, in relation to having all the ducks in a row, shall we say, before any guidance could be even considered. So, I think there was meat on the bone with that one, especially. Yeah. And I think we've got uh, extensions of, um, I'll call it anti-redundancy rights. That's probably the wrong label, but certainly redundancy protections for maternity cases, parental leave, extending it beyond the current um, yeah, sort so of term. Um, six to eight, from six months to 18 um, was the principle in the, in the consultation. And then we've had, was it two weeks ago today, actually, the Employment Relations Flexible Working Act. 2023 passed that doesn't mean it's effective yet so that because i think it's still got to have a royal assent and have uh, secondary legislation put in place but the principle is i guess it's going ahead at a future point um if, if i cover some of the brief points i think of what that means so the in the act introduces the following so um, an employer will now be able to make two flexible working requests with any 12-month period. Uh, the employers will have to deal with the flexible working request within two months of receiving them unless there's a mutually agreed extension. Um, it'll, uh, the change is to ensure that requests are handled promptly and employers receive timely response. Uh, the employers will no longer be able to refuse the request outright. They will actually have to consult with the employee. However, the Act does not specify any minimum requirement for that consultation process, uh, leaving it open to interpretation by the employers. So it doesn't actually give the individual still in, a right, but I think it's, it's giving them a right to at least have it considered in a more serious way, other than saying, no way, you're not. Um, I think it's an element of uh, seriousness in that consultation. And equally, the employee no longer has to explain how that flexible working request may impact the employer. I think that now becomes an employer's uh, problem. The employee is just having to explain from their angle, et cetera. Well, I don't even really have to do that. They just make the request and the employer has the uh, obligation. Now, uh, sometimes it was explained that this was going to be a day one right, 
but I don't believe that's the case. I think it opens the window for secondary legislation to be introduced to make it a day one right, but it hasn't brought in a day one right. It's still a 26-week right. I don't know if there's anything more uh, you can comment on their team on the uh, the changes. You know, so, I think the day one right was a commitment from the government when this initially started. But as you say, it's not in the final draft, shall we say? Because yeah, I think the principal what, argument is, I was going to say, I think the principal argument, as you said, Simon, it's about the employer being more active around the request rather than possibly just saying no. Because um, also within it, it states about other types of flexible working should also be considered if the one that's originally being asked for doesn't work. So whether that be job sharing, split shifts, annualised work, whatever it may be. So I think it's it's all about making it fairer, making it more, I guess, focused for the employer um, to actually be more constructive, um, I think is really key about it. Yeah, Lou, you had some comments to make, I think. Yeah, um, the government had said that it would deal with the day one request through separate secondary legislation, and that hasn't been tabled yet. And um, it achieved royal assent on the 20th of July. Okay, so that was, yes, a few days after. So, yeah, thank you for that. And I think um, there is no right of appeal requirement, I think, within it. But there's a recommendation within the Act that uh, employers follow the ACAS code of practice on flexible working. So I think that's still a potentially a voluntary code, but uh, we'll have to see where future leads. And uh, substantive consultation uh, is another area. There is actually no requirement for substantive consultation, but because it doesn't describe what the consultation is, but there is a requirement for consultation. So uh, we'll have to see how this goes. So this is all part of moving forward with the modernization of uh, current flexible working framework for the future. And we'll see where we go. I think this is becoming increasingly a recruitment vehicle that wins an employer over. So I think the, the, uh, the power is a little bit more on the worker's foot following our COVID uh, couple of years. I mean, definitely in interviewing for positions to come in to payroll, my payroll team, it definitely is a key factor for the people that I'm interviewing because they want to have the flexibility. They want to understand what's available to them from our business. And I mean, I suppose ultimately that will be used as a, a bargaining tool against moving jobs or, you know, going back to an employer. Yeah, I think it's key. Uh, I think, you know, the, I think the other aspect of this is it's nowhere near done. Um, if you read the evaluation, um, shared is definitely going to be on the horizon, uh, including a full review of it. Um, again, going back to 2019 before COVID, um, work had already started, but then obviously stopped. So principally, it could even mean a complete redevelopment of shared leave and pay. Um, they're talking about within the evaluation going to a more European model um, in respect that there's just a pot. Um, so principally, the father and the mother could well have X number of weeks of pay and leave to use as they so desire, rather than linking it to the maternity period. So I, 
originally I had 13 weeks back in 2019. So basically the father would just get 13 weeks of option. The mother would have 13 weeks of option and they would just use it accordingly if they desire. And obviously that would massively simplify the process uh, from what currently can be a very long-winded and complex scenario. There's a lot of stuff there as well, which could cause quite significant change in payroll. Um, That's great. Now, I don't see any that we've got any questions in in relation to parental uh, leave at the moment. But uh, again, I guess the, the other angle that I'm thinking traditionally we see and is always open to challenge uh, is, of course, uh, what's going to happen with minimum wage next year and significant rises if there are more again, because inflation has not dropped that much, um, just a little, uh, and how that uh, hits with the alabaster principle and how people are coping with that. But uh, should we go on to our uh, next topic, which I think is on... Well, Carl Out's deductions in the two cases. And and one aspect I think we didn't cover on our work-life balance is we were kind of commenting to each other before we came on this call. Did any of us actually have a work-life balance? <laughs> Maybe we weren't the best examples. But uh, do you want to tell us a little bit about uh, Lang O'Rourke and the Wilmot Dixon cases, Richard? I'd love to. So this is a challenging one, uh, I think it's fair to say. So they actually go back um a few years um in relation to the, the original yeah. tribunal and the, the circumstances actually go all the way back to 2002 uh, if memory serves correctly so if you are not aware of this hang on to your hats um because this is a good one so um principally there have been previous cases um in respect of the reclamation or consideration of uh tax and national insurance on cars where this has now become a much bigger issue is the scenario we have with the two um businesses you can see on the slide so background um both of them are building companies um, both of them are substantial um, and both of them have um thousands of staff uh, langer rock is about eight thousand in the uk um can't remember off the top of my head wilmot Principally, um, they have car uh, company cars, uh, but they also have a car allowance scheme. The car allowance schemes are fiscally based on grade rather than usage. Um, and looking, if you, sorry, my watch is talking to me. Um, and looking at the case notes um, with um, Langer Rock, for instance at least half the people who received the car allowance do no business mileage at all so the schemes are not based uh, on requirement or need they are not based on the member of staff having to use the car for business but primarily the schemes were originally for that fact with wilmot dixon it's slightly different um where yes the car schemes are based again on grade level but principally, it was originally also based on usage. Um, but in, but the, the issue as well with Wilmot is they don't even need to use the allowance to buy a car, but it's there if they need it. So we're looking at a allowance requirement and it has been taken out for years and years and years. What's actually occurred is that both um, Langer Rock and Wilmot have made substantial 
um, claims against national insurance paid. Um, Laying O'Rourke is well over £2 million. Um, Wilmot, well over a million pounds um, of refunded uh, national insurance against the car allowance. Now, many of you who won't know about this case will probably say, well, surely car allowance is remuneration. It's taxable and nickable. And if you'd have asked me, I'd have said absolutely the same, especially given the staff in both businesses are paid for mileage separately. So if they do um, business mileage, there is a tax and NI free claimable amount, um, not necessarily the full advisory, but obviously the employee can claim the tax back on the difference of the two. They both went to um, initial tribunal and they both lost on the grounds that the tribunal agreed that they were remuneration um, and the principle was that therefore it's taxable and nickable. The key scenario, however, in the appeal was that the legislation has other areas that looks at things such as RME, which is relevant motoring expenditure and qualifying allowances. The argument, and I guess it's not necessarily a loophole, but the flexibility is that the actual legislation, uh, and I think it's 22A, is very polarized and does not give true flexibility around what RME truly is. And therefore, the argument has been that even though these cars were not specifically for it, there could be an interpretation, for instance, that the attention was that they were. And they're using this as their argument to claim the millions of pounds of national insurance back. What's occurred is that the appeal has agreed with them on the back of Rule 22A that there isn't enough meat on the bone, use that phrase again, within the legislation to, I guess, state what that truly means in respect of RME or the qualifying allowance. And therefore, in the view of the appeal, both companies are in their rights to reclaim the national insurance. And this is big stuff, because if you can imagine how many companies have car allowance schemes, um, how many cars are out there on car allowance schemes or even employees, it could well mean that pretty much anyone with a scheme that matches or is relevant to these two could have exactly the same right to claim. Now, hold on for the moment because um, HMRC has 30 days to appeal um, and they will, you'd have thought, on the grounds that this is fairly different. But you can also expect very quickly that Gov and HMRC will more than likely write new legislation. Um, but I guess the issue is is legislative, um, the legacy situation that we now have. I think that's about it, Simon. Super. So I think I'm back now, guys. Apologies. Can you hear me now? Am I good? Yep. Yeah, we can now, hear you, Nick. I've swapped computers and, and, and changed things around. So apologies for, for, for thank you, Simon, for holding the fort. So picking up from what um, Rich has just said, um, what does that mean going forward, Simon? Anything else you can uh, you can add? Well, yeah. Well, I'll add another angle, which is the difference between taxation and national insurance. So we know that, uh, and and this probably applies to some of us because some of us actually drive our own cars for business. So we may be in that that case of the uh, offset allowance uh, different. So in effect, they're saying if you you could get 45p a mile, if you only got 20p a mile, you can get the national insurance relief on 25 pence. That's in effect what we're saying here, isn't it? But we know that for the first 10,000 miles, you only get 45p. Thereafter, you get 25. 
But the oddity about national insurance law is that the rate is 45p. Regardless, there is no 10,000 mile limit. So that's why it then escalates up. Um, but what it means, I guess, going from now is employers need to decide if they want to make a reclaim if they haven't done, because you're running out of time. So I think as Richard, as you're saying, assuming that this uh, sticks as is and requires a change in legislation, the past is the past. That's as it is. Legislation will change the future. So there is potentials that businesses could reclaim back these AMAP uh, difference amounts. Um, and uh, some businesses will, who have lodged a claim will have 12 years of outstanding claim. For other businesses that haven't claimed, you've got more strict limits. So you can only go back, is it potentially four years um, for that reclaim, but even still significant amount. But, uh, but yes, I think this is going to sort of throw up in the air and revolutionize the thoughts on company car versus private car for business usage and whether there's NIC reliefs involved, etc. Perfect. Perfect. Actually, we've had a couple of questions coming. I don't know how long we've been here, so apologies if you sent these while I was offline. Um, someone just very quickly asked, may have joined slightly after the introduction to say, will we receive the recording of the session? The answer is yes, it will come later on in the show. Um, and a question that's slightly unrelated it says, uh, how should we treat the calculation of NI for late starters? For example, I have an employee who starts on the 19th of June, and this is paid on top of July salary, brackets month one. Our system is HMRC accredited, but does not separate the period payment, so the employee is paying too much NI. Well, shall I tackle, to, uh, tackle two elements there, if I may? Go for it. Go for uh, it. There's, there's no such thing as an HMRC accredited payroll system. So if your payroll system claims it, they're not telling the truth. So there are recognized systems, but the recognized systems purely test an FPS submission between the payroll and HMRC. HMRC mm -hmm. don't credit any payroll system. Now, if you, look, you, yeah, and if you look at CWG2, there's a section on there. I think it's quite late in. I'm going to say number 32 springs into my head. I might be completely wrong. It's just the way my brain works at times. Notice how none of the panel are going to challenge you. We all just accept no, it as, as probably. Yes. Uh, but I may have that wrong. Uh, when we look at it, it'll be something completely different. And I'll say, oh, yes, but if you do this and multiply by infinity and divide by pi, it comes to 32. Um, but uh, well, she'll actually say you have to split the earnings into the two separate periods. You take the calculation at the point of payment, but it's two periods, the start period and the current period. That's the requirement under CWG2. Okay, super. And actually, a question related to um, the ruling we just discussed, uh, comes in from Dagmar, says, how can we go about claiming the NI back? That, uh, that way. Richard, do you uh, got any thoughts? Sure. The EPS, I guess. Yes. I, I, well, uh, for the NI, you mean for the car uh, NIC? Yes. Yes, for the car NIC, I think you need to write uh, to HMRC. There'll be a standard employer's contact address. Is that a long Benton? I'm thinking from memory. I might be wrong. It'll be a PO box. Uh, they won't uh, open that mail for probably for three months. And but I, I think the importance is certainly having seen some of the solicitor's advice is lodge the claim. Uh, it'll sit there. But as I say, some have had outstanding claims for 12 years, but that doesn't expire once you've lodged the claim. 
I think it stays. It kind of stops time. Otherwise, if you wait, um, you'll find that your four-year limit goes back from the point you decide to claim. All I right. guess the other thing, Simon, is for the employee, usually if you are claiming the difference between, say, 20p and 45p, it's usually just a tax reclaim. Yes. Does it therefore mean that the employee can make the NIC claim as well? Well, that's that's the fun about this one, isn't it? Because potentially it does, doesn't it? And I think the ruling is not purely about secondary NI. It's about uh, primary NI as well. So potentially, um, us that have had our own cars and using it for mileage and only got back the tax, uh, maybe we could take that basis and say, well, come on, you gave me tax relief for uh, for 12,000 miles difference between what I get and, and that. Uh, where's my national insurance? Uh, uh, 12%. Because yep. I, I did for six years. Six years, I used to get a much lower rate. Um, so just personally, it's like, mm. <laughs> Yes, okay. there'll be 2.5 million claims gone into HMRC by tomorrow as a result. Of this <laughs> yeah. right. Are you giving a three-month window, Simon? They've got time to respond. Oh, no. It's all good. Well, let's, let's move it along. We've got poll number two, which interestingly was what crashed in my last system. So hopefully I'll stay with you for this one. And we're about to move into the subject of HMRC PAYE deadlines to support. So in uh, in advance of that, this is our second poll of today. It's, it's, it relates to, of course, PAYE settlement agreements. And the question is this, how would you describe the experience with PAYE settlement agreements, also known as PSAs? If you're on audio only, the options are very smooth, no issues, somewhat easy or minor difficulties encountered. Challenging, I've faced some issues. Very difficult, I've had major issues, or not applicable because I haven't used a PSA. Uh, while we're waiting for those to come in, what about what's your perspective on, on this, Richard? How would you describe your experience with that PAYE settlement agreements? Uh, well, my personal experience of PSAs um, finished when I left <laughs> JP Morgan in, 19, <laughs> in about 2020, uh, 2020, 2001. Um, I think. Um, there's been significant change in how they're done. I think probably the greatest thing that was ever done was removal of the annual requirement. You know, it has been eased in respect of a process that once you've done it, it stays until you remove it. I think the complexities have been created over time by obviously the devolution of taxation, uh, meaning that you've obviously got to consider Welsh and Scottish separately. Um, but I think, you know, just the whole way the world has changed has eased them because of the digital world we now live in. But I think so I was, uh, it, I'm going to push you on an answer and you're answering the poll, which you're not allowed to do as a panel member. But if you had to pick okay. ADC, I'll yeah. <laughs> click. I'm clicking and it's not letting me poll. You're not allowed to poll. <laughs> I'm going to put it down as a somewhat easy then based on that response. I'll we'll go with that one. Where would you be on this uh, on the, on this uh, list? What, what would you be clicking, Simon? Uh, well, that's difficult, and it depends on the circumstances. Assuming that the business understands the nature of a PSA, I'd hope to click very smooth. But seeing the interactions, these are PAY settlement arrangements quite often misunderstood. And it's at this point that we find that all the uh, the things that various departments have done coming out of the woodwork and thinking, oh, yeah, no, I gave a did this or did that oh yeah i gave them some vouchers i gave them this i gave them that way above the trivial benefit uh, limit sometimes or they did some other things oh yeah i, did, I gave them a you know 
the golden boot, uh, cash in the boot type stuff. Um, and then you think, well, yeah, that's a great incentive. Did you think about the PA, the uh, tax and national insurance implications? And often, I, I don't know what Lucy's, but certainly I get a lot of people, oh, I'll just shove it on the PSA. And there's an element well, of, you can't. Well, sadly, <laughs> our audience that we're pushing to make a response, they don't get a chance to put in context either, Simon. So what would your response be? Oh, um, yes. Yeah. But, but I, well, I'll say I think it's challenging generally for payroll professionals, predominantly because the businesses often don't understand them. But in housing yourself, with the HMRC, that's a different matter as well. I would agree with Simon. Um, challenging and facing some issues. Um, as a bureau business, we're reliant if a client joins us for them to have an understanding of what has happened in the past. Um, not all previous providers were able to share that information. And obviously, um, some businesses, payroll is separate. So conversations with other teams and benefits that are sorted out, that isn't always, um, that conversation isn't shared with payroll. So sometimes as a bureau, we first know that a PSA is in place whenever HMRC sends a penalty or asked where um, payment is in relation to PSAs, but very often in the bureau side, whenever you ask a client about the benefits, about what has to go through, what's counted, what's happened in the past, it's very much they don't know, and it's trying to establish from HMRC with the client's help um, what, what they have in place and if that needs change. And then obviously, working in a business like Evelyn Partners, then as a payroll bureau, then we have to rely on our tax experts as well to help us as a bureau. We wouldn't be doing the PSAs, but we would have the information that would be helpful to any team doing it. Sure. And what about yourself, Andy? You've got two challenging. We've got somewhat easy. Where would you be on this? Uh, <laughs> well, the last time I did a PSA was 2007. And, oh, we're not uh, looking for Switzerland, guys. Come on, I'm going to push you for an answer, Andy. Where would you go? I'm going to go That's with... applicable. <laughs> 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 it would now be not applicable, yes. Fair enough. Fair enough. I gave you that as an option, so that's okay. But let's have a look at the audience thing. Let's get those results back up and see if the audience agree. So results we've got for those in listen-only mode. We've got very smooth, no issues, 18%. Somewhat easy, minor difficulties, 21%. Challenging. Face some issues, 20% is pretty close between those two. Very difficult, 3%, and 38% of audience say not applicable. So let me come back to you here, Luke, because you've got a, a complex bureau payroll yourself. What do you think of those results? I mean, anybody that's not applicable to that's excellent, and I'm slightly jealous. But whenever you look at the top three, I mean, they are very close. And I think it really does depend where in the business you sit and what impact. And very often, as a payroll professional, you're impacted by a PSA not being in place or being in place and not having that information. And that's where sometimes the negative can come from, you know. But if you have a system that works and it goes smoothly, I mean, that's amazing because ultimately it should be a smooth, straightforward process. But as with everything in life, always expect the unexpected. Absolutely right. We've got 3% that said uh, very difficult, major issues. Let's jump into the subject then. Hopefully we can uh, 
uh, alleviate some of those difficulties you may be having. If there's anything in specific you want our panel to support you with in relation to BSAs, do put it in the questions box. Um, if you're in that part of that 3% and you need some help, and I'll ask those questions to our panel. But um, Son, I'll come back to yourself. HMRC, PAYE deadlines and support, settlement agreements, blended rates and more. If you, want, if you can give us an overview. Okay. If I just touch on the the deadlines for PSA-wise, uh, to apply for one for last tax year, it closed on the 5th of July from memory. So you can't now apply for last tax year, but you've got till 5th of July next year for the current year to think about that. And you have to make your return by the 19th of October, which is one of the uh, elements here. Um, we see today, I've, I've certainly had a couple of pushes, and HMRC have done a nice little video on self-assessment of do it early and things like that. But we found that a number of the helplines closed. <laughs> so it seems like we've gone through a period where HMRC have said, oh, we've hit the April peak. Why do people apply their self-assessment in April? I know why. I do it myself. It's because HMRC owe me. So I file it in April. Now, um, if I owe them money, I file it in January. Now, I keep on getting asked that question by HMRC in lots of consultations of why do I do that? And it's sort of in April, I get the money back within seven days. And in January, uh, the deadline is the same no matter when I fail my self-assessment, but you won't change my tax code in current year because it's so late. And so you leave me alone, whereas uh, uh, some, some of us, I'm sure thousands of us, millions of us in the UK, have probably just had the tax bounce because the P11Ds have been processed this uh, last year. So you'll all have found that a lot of you that you've gone on to month one, week one, month one tax. Why? I don't know. <laughs> but they've done that because your codes dropped by five. Why we'd need to do that for a code that's dropped so little, don't know. But that's the sort of thing that's going on. So yeah, I don't know if that's the experience. But at the moment, the, the helplines are closed. But they want you to file. And that's going to link to a, a poll we've got coming up. Uh, so if anyone is having HMRC performance issues, we'll have an opportunity for you to uh, let us know in a poll that's coming up shortly. Uh, what's been your experience, Lou? Because I know obviously you've got to manage different deadlines and, and, and different client deadlines in particular. What's been your experience? For PSAs? Yeah, and, well, and, well, and for PAYE deadlines and, and actually your experience with HMRC as well, I think. Have you ever asked yourself, how can I recruit payroll staff effectively? Please don't give up on your recruitment project just yet. Here at JGA Payroll Recruitment, we appreciate the difficulties associated with attracting, recruiting and retaining top payroll talent. We also understand just how costly a poor payroll hire can be. JGA Recruitment are a niche payroll recruitment agency who will partner with you to resource payroll candidates who will improve both the accuracy and efficiency of your payroll department. Contact us today on 01727 800 377 or visit jgarecruitment.com to find out more. Okay, so in relation to PSA, unfortunately, I find in a bureau, we can be in the back foot. So as I said before, it's whenever HMRC reaches out to the client or sends us the penalty notice or the notification, where's your payment? That's when we actually discover um, and then have to, to make amends and to look at it. In relation to um, HMRC experience, um, I, don't, I don't like to be negative, but at the moment, 
whenever we are transitioning so many payrolls, it's very hard to get a PAY number to be able to set up the new payrolls. And we are running at times between eight and nine weeks behind actually getting the information. In relation to telephone calls, I mean, obviously, the earlier you ring in the day, that's when you can maybe maybe get somebody. But then we'll run into the problem sometimes, as with all occupations, there's good people to talk to and then there's the terrible people to talk to. So if you get a terrible person that you don't understand what they're saying or you don't know the basis, then you have to ring back. So that's wasting more time. And that is a lot, a large part of our day being on the line, waiting for somebody in HMRC to talk to, to be able to help and guide. And it's very frustrating. And whenever you're running a team of 14, then you're having to remember you're balancing the frustration of the team and what yeah. they have to experience. And whenever they got um, HMRC are very quick to say you've done it wrong. But then whenever you try to fix the problem or try to understand how to fix it, it's getting the correct steps and actions that you need to take. And at the moment, that is a big frustration. Definitely the strike did not help because that's delayed things further in getting resolution to appeals and being able to talk to somebody. But there's no improvement for, for me personally and for my team at the moment. That's interesting to hear. And Simon, I've got a, a point here about the impact of the closure of the self-assessment line and, and options for resolving disputes. So if we know there's HMRC performance issues, what are the options that are available to us? <laughs> yeah, it's it's a tough one. And uh, I, I could sort of relay an instant. Uh, Lou will tell me it's probably been quite a good response, but I phoned uh, three o'clock in an afternoon a week Wednesday ago. Um, uh, I listened to the music for 55 minutes. They did answer. They couldn't answer my query, so they took my number and promised they'd call back within uh, 24 hours. Um, so I waited. Uh, I waited 48 hours. Then the weekend arrived, and I escalated it. Lou will know that there's, and Richard will know that there are some people that we can kind of say, you know, is is this normal experience? And I got a call on the 9:25 on the Monday morning. Uh, so they actually did deal with my problem, but they said that there was no call logged to call me back. But that wasn't the impression I gave, and I'm sure others here will uh, a common experience i'm sure we're all seeing is uh you phone up to register a charge resolution because your account doesn't yeah. balance uh, they tell you it's registered but actually it's not and the uh, debt collectors will be around in a month's time with their baseball bats and dogs to <laughs> seize goods um and and then you phone up and uh, it seems sometimes, I, I don't know what the issue is, whether that's uh, um, uh, incentivization to close calls so that they don't have follow-up, because, because you see that in all sorts of customer service arenas. Uh, is it that it's, uh, you know, well, yeah. well it's, it's sort of when I complain about goods or services uh, because something's gone wrong, you phone up, they seem to always say at the end, can I close the call now? And there's yeah. elements of, but you haven't fixed the problem. Yeah, yeah. And I think yeah. that's important to realise. I mean, sitting in a in a bureau, I can only speak, obviously, because that's the experience for the last six years. The number of times we have had phone calls into the office or emails, the debt collectors are at our door because we haven't made the correct payments or we've underpaid. 
And then whenever you intervene, it actually isn't an error that WAVE or the client have made. It's actually how they've distributed the funds or uh, they've put it to the wrong, the wrong company. And I think as well, whenever you're dealing with a bureau and you're dealing with clients all over the world, they don't understand HMRC and what the issue is. So you're being labelled perhaps as a bureau or somebody dealing with HMRC as the incompetent one. So they don't understand that you can't always get the answer and there has to be a delay of sometimes weeks. And whenever we would reply to clients to manage their expectations, I'm now saying eight to 10 weeks before we can get a response in the hope that if we are able to phone three times a week, you know, and then every day, that we will get a resolution. But that then impacts us and our business. And people don't necessarily understand across the globe that the issue can be HMRC. And they don't get that because it's a government body. How about yourself, Richard? Do you usually, um, you know, have an opinion on these kinds of things? You, you, what's your view? I don't know if you're calling oh, probably, it easy, but... Probably no more than anyone else, because obviously we only hear stories from clients um, and they're obviously very similar uh, in that respect. It's always the case of I've been on the phone for days. I've rung them four times to get the right answer um, rather than the first one. Um, you know, I think it's a however the improvements are promised. We, you know, the, the, the anecdotal discussion and evidence is that it hasn't. Um, actually for the user. Um, they can give out as many sort of merits that they like about how well they're doing and how many are being answered. But, you know, anecdotally, it doesn't seem to have changed. Um, sure. in what people are saying. Let's see what the, what the audience are feeling here, because, you know, we've got a small panel uh, you know, of results here. Let's see if this is true for most of our audience with our next poll, which is how do you rate the HMRC's performance in terms of its services interaction? There may be some of you listening to this, well, you know what? It's been absolutely superb. It's exceeded my expectations. I've heard all of these reports, and actually, when I've tried, it's been excellent. Maybe it's just been good. It's met your expectations. Maybe fair is the answer, which could be better or poor and needs significant improvement. Um, I'll be interested to see this. If, if everyone, anyone has had a superb experience, please do put it in, a, in, in the chat or in the questions so we can be aware of that, so we can give a fair account of what people's experiences have been. But certainly, from my side of the fence as a recruiter, uh, dealing with power managers on a regular basis, um, yeah, it's, uh, it's it's definitely similar to the experiences of our panel so far. So I'll be interested to see to see those results. How about yourself, Andy? I know um, again, not probably not something you have much interaction with, but what's um, what, what's been your take, or what are you hearing, or what have you heard, or what's your experience been when you have needed to um, the A to HMRC? I had to do it on a personal level about two months, three months ago, and um, I gave up in the end after fifty odd minutes. I thought. I need to go in my life, but <laughs> I mean, a digital taxi plan, our own, you know, our own, you know, we can access it is a personal, you know, tax issue, um, which I just resolved it in the end over the um, over the web connection, but not good. No, obviously, with the age of HMRC, we have various connections and they provide RTI data to TPR, uh, etc. So, I know obviously that that works and there's service level agreements and all the rest of it, but on a personal front, I think I would I would be in the poor need significant improvement. Well, let's see what our audience have to say then. We've got four options here. Let's see what the results have come back with. See if they agree. 
So for those in audio only, I think this is quite interesting. So superb is 0%. Good is 2%. So there is someone in our audience here or a couple of people that have found it met expectations. Fair could be better. <laughs> possibly, possibly. Uh, fair could be better, 32%. Uh, maybe it's someone in our audience who got a, a, a rebate that was well in excess of what they were expecting. Um, poor needs significant improvement, 66%. So probably no surprises there, but Lou, what are your thoughts or what's your commentary on that on those results? I think, I mean, we all have times where we've reached out to HMRC and we have had a good experience. So, we, I mean, there always has been a good employee who's been able to help us. But overall, um, you know, poor and needs significant improvement is definitely, you know, how everybody on the call feels and it's definitely how I feel. And I think it's about that important message of um, HMRC, HMRC communicating and talking to the people down on the ground who are doing that work day in, day out. Ultimately, I don't have to phone HMRC every day. Um, thankfully, my team uh, do that for me on my behalf. But I do know that um, there's a lot of work needed done, especially as we look at automa automation and we're looking at the dashboard. We want it to be accurate and correct for our clients and for any employer who has to use it. Sure. I think there's a lesson in there as well, uh, Lou. I know that the uh, National Payroll Week this week is a big focus on advancing the payroll career. And I think the good thing about our panel of the show and the audience here is it's, it makes sense to go up the career ladder as quickly as you can. You can then delegate the calls to one of your team. <laughs> um, but I think in, in, the, in the interest of balance of what you've just said, um, Tracy's commented to say it's very true. It all depends on who you get through to. I've had really good results and really bad results. Uh, Keely says, um, I rated fair because I think um, we could do better too. I often see payments submitted without the correct tax year, tax month suffix applied to the reference. Uh, so I think that's a fair comment. Um, Jessica says, the last time I called, uh, which is back in May, I wasted an hour for an answer, then spent an hour on the phone trying to resolve a few issues. And after being passed around, I did resolve one issue, but one is still outstanding uh, three months later. I've written to them and we'll see if I get anything back, but I'm not holding my breath. And Tina says, I've been waiting since February for our PAYE to be corrected due to their um, reallocation of funds, which I think is something one of our panel mentioned earlier, to another account. They replied in June that it was sorted and it hasn't been. Uh, so, yeah, I don't know if, if there is anyone from HLC listening to this, maybe this is good feedback to, to take on board. But let's move on then, because we're going into the holiday season. And I think it probably therefore makes sense that we talk about how we prepare for it, how we manage payroll during busy shutdowns. And you know, I work in recruitment, so I know this is tough. I know that payroll people are probably the last people in any business to take a holiday, particularly if you're working in a sole payroll environment. It can be very, very difficult. People need to be paid, and it's very hard for payroll professionals to, to get away. So um, if you do manage to get away, it's important you prepare in the right way to make sure your employees are still paid accurately and on time. So how do we manage payroll during busy shutdowns um let's start with yourself Richard thank you um I guess is what is what shutdowns are we talking about um I guess the positive change in the world since covid around the whole area of having the flexibility but also obviously the home-based working option makes it you'd think quite a lot less of a problem than it would have been previously um looking at the payroll industry yeah, pre-2020, it was five days a week in an office. 
you only had your computer on your desk and therefore subsequently the issues um, grew immensely. Um, certainly seen obviously during all the strike action, uh, for instance, in London, where the impact is far, far less on employers because on those days you can just work from home. So I think the impact has reduced. I think the key issue, however, is holidays during the summer. Number one, ensuring you have, I guess, managed the team accordingly, that you still have the um, the resource to do the work that's required. Um, secondly, is having enough knowledge within your business of who else is going to be away, because obviously you need the support or you may need information. So I think that whole integration, which we've talked about probably on every call for the last six months, about payroll being a bigger voice in the business um, and actually ensuring that they're aware of who's there and who's not. You know, when all of a sudden you need two signatures to do X and both of them are on holiday for the whole of August, suddenly that can become quite challenging. So I think payroll department, it's being a very vocal, being very aware, ensuring that you've reviewed all of your processes, not only the ones to get to clicking the button at the end of the month, um to to be able to manage your process accordingly but then obviously on the flip side is is let's go back to work-life balance you know being constructive but also being very considerate to the staff who've probably had a pretty tough couple of years um as to allowing them to be on holiday so i think it's a real balancing act but i think it's just that the pre-planning and preparation is very key yeah, I would fully agree. The pre-planning and, and engaging as stakeholders to let them know that you need a holiday. And one thing we're seeing in the industry at the minute, everyone's talking about rapid transformation and automation, making payroll jobs easier. I don't know how about the people listening to this, but from what I'm seeing is payroll professionals are working harder than they've ever worked. And that includes more hours than ever before, whether you're remote or otherwise. And there's a lot of burnout happening and people need a holiday to rest, recover, recuperate, and come back stronger. So if we don't have that, if businesses don't allow their payroll professionals to go on the holidays that they need, then they're gonna end up with burnout, and they're gonna end up with more errors, in my opinion, through people being tired and not having a holiday than they will if they if they don't let them go. But that's, that's a personal view, it's certainly something I'm seeing in the industry. Um, Simon, coming to you, what are some of the other considerations or things perhaps people need to think about? Uh, yes, yeah, an interesting topic, isn't it? And am I qualified to say, not working in that sort of area. But I have to say, things have changed over these past few years, hasn't it? As a software, payroll software developer, we would hit our peak from October through uh, May. It would be, you know, almost, I won't say 24 hours, but almost it felt like that. And then suddenly when you went into June through to September, there'd be this lull of uh, virtually nothing. But uh, that's disappeared probably about 15 years ago. So now it seems to be an element of flat out. However, I think we do need to plan. We need to plan for breaks. I'm off for a 10 days uh, in a couple of weeks time. Uh, you get good support from your team. Uh, but I, I agree with you, Nick. I think uh, technology has made certain things easy, but that hasn't lightened the load because that's been replaced by other activity, um, yeah. which is positive in some ways, negative in others. So because it gives us a little bit more influence rather than uh, just dealing as a data clerk all the time, we're actually uh, more of an in, a payroll intelligence group that can support a business. I guess the concept of closure, does that occur still? Uh, certainly I knew uh, from the 
going back probably to the uh, late 80s, 90s, we still had local holiday uh, schemes operating. So uh, I can remember, certainly in Scotland, the whole town of Cowden Beath seemed to just close down. Everything just closed for a whole week uh, and everybody went away uh, somewhere. I don't know if that happens traditionally here. I guess going back 100 years, that everybody probably skipped down to Kent to pick the hops whilst they did a working holiday. So it is very different and fluid. I think we're more controlled by schools these days because uh, uh, in the old days, you just fill in a form, wouldn't you? Take your kids off in, in early May when the weather was turning good and you had yourself affordable holiday, whereas these days you end up with a penalty or fine if you do that. So you're now stuck in a window. So everybody, if they've got a family, wants to compete for the same window of leave um uh, and, and rightly so to be honest because they've got young kids to look after etc but i think there's an element of plan plan and plan and if you've got good team support uh then you can plan good coverage but equally slow people down that's certainly something i'm having i have to do at times to say it's very good you need in that capacity but realize you're now in uh, the holiday period um, I guess being a subsidiary of a Belgian company these days, the Belgium uh, culture is they have three weeks in August where they go away. It's almost like the whole nation shuts down. Mm -hmm. Is that a bit more like the old French uh, culture, which probably doesn't exist anymore, but did certainly in the 60s and 70s where everybody went to the south to go and pick grapes? Um, to an extent and, you know Paris was empty and you used to even get that in Rome where everybody just headed off uh, the city centres were closed pretty much in those sorts of peak times maybe that's an era that's gone and maybe I'm showing my age how about yourself uh, Baloo you've obviously got to manage multiple deadlines multiple clients how do you work you know how do you plan to ensure that all those clients are paid compliantly and, 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 and on time and managing all the different deadlines I know you've got a team to support you but it must still be tough to manage the voters if everyone wants to take holiday at the same time it is and we're very fortunate what we have done is we've set up a annual leave sheet where people are writing when they want to be off and then requesting it and then we put in place um, six months ago an annual leave policy to make it clear so that there was a structure and there was consistency for the team and so that it was first come first served and for people to plan and prepare in the lead up to time off depending on whether it's one week or two um, then it's about talking to clients and making them informed that somebody's going to be on leave and somebody else will pick it up in their absence. And it's all very much about the communication piece. I, I'm a great believer. This almost touches on the work-life balance. I don't want my team members to work um, for three weeks in one week to be able to take two weeks off on annual leave. And I feel almost that's the downside, well, another downside to what way we've worked the last number of years being on hand, always having a laptop or else a phone so that we can always be contacted. I want my team on the day to switch off to annual leave to go on annual leave. And I think that's really important to give that message. Something else that sometimes does impact a bureau is actually from a client perspective. 
a client goes on holidays and doesn't communicate that they're on, on leave. So you're chasing input, you know that employees aren't going to get paid and you've got nobody to talk to. Or even worse, um, the bank button, the client doesn't have the person who's able to log on and hit the button that says, yes, empty this money from the, the, uh, the employer account into the employees. And the number of times you know, over the years where you're frantically ringing across the world to find somebody to be able to give you the data or approve the payroll or actually to pay the employees, it would actually surprise you that that isn't always considered as well. Yeah, be, it would, would have been an interesting poll to run. Uh, maybe we should have thought of this before, but how many people when they do go on holiday that are listening and watching this actually do switch off from their mobile phones? And that's the reality that you're entitled to, right? You've earned that annual leave. There's no need uh, for you to log in in theory, but actually we find, certainly I do, we find you, you're switched on regardless, you're connecting with people, you're answering emails, and actually how much of a real break do many of the people on this on this show and, and, and are watching in? actually get even if they manage to get away and i think it's an interesting question and, and well done lou for championing the facts in your team that actually when you're away you're away i think that's absolutely the right attitude it's very difficult for people to do that so well done i think that's really good a couple of uh, comments i was going to say nick i was say i think there's another angle to this as well um and that is as a manager uh, so i have a large team you've got to consider work-life balance for these guys too um, it's very easy for a busy manager in a busy department who's got phenomenal deadlines and multiple clients to be so worried about fulfilling their process that it clouds their judgment on allowing the staff to take the leave. And I think that's an absolute no-no. I've always been a massive believer in the balance. And unless there is a really hard reason, I'm not going to say no to you. I'll work around it. I'll ensure my clients are aware of this and so on and so forth. And I think that's something that's easily forgotten. But I think going on the back of what Lou said about having to do three weeks work in a week to have a week off, it's the other end as well. So I go off for a week and you have heard it a million times. I know I'm coming back to a bloody nightmare, excuse the phrase. Um, I know that I'll have 7,000 emails and 50 jobs that weren't done last week that I'm now going to have to do as well. As a manager, your critical part to this is minimising and getting rid of that. So putting something in place to ensure that that's not the case either, because you could go on holiday for a week. By two weeks after the holiday, you're more tired than when you before you went. Yeah, I think much. there's some really key elements on the other side of it for those who are managing. And it's really I think, important. I think also, I don't know if anyone else has felt this on the panel. It happens to me every time and you can't predict it. Like, I don't feel like I ever get ill when I'm at work. But the minute I get on holiday, I suddenly come down <laughs> for something, right? And I think it's your body kind of delays illness that's inside the body. It casts it, you get away and suddenly you get a cold or you end up with the flu. Honestly, last summer, I've been... 24 hours of going on holiday, I got bronchitis and I was laid low the whole time and I came back to work. But I, I, I'm personally, I don't think there's any science in this. I believe it happens no, I think a lot. Your body relaxes, doesn't it, Nick? You know, and you, you become, it. your tolerance goes. You have time to be ill, whereas when you're working, you don't. Yeah, this uh, is it. it. Yes, it gets. But I think we, there's sort of, we need a, a cultural shift, don't we? And I think the law's been that way for some time that the obligation on employer is to plan for the holiday. So you, you've got to expect that 5.6 weeks statutory leave is taken. Plan it yeah. in. 
so often on social media, I mean, lose. I know on the same circles, you'll get people say, well, uh, my employer hasn't paid me for the, uh, I don't know, 560 hours that they owe me and I didn't have time because we're busy. And it's sort of plan and take your leave. And the law doesn't allow payment in lieu. So is it just you want more? Do you know what I mean? But, it, but it's a balance of deciding we need to plan for the leave to replenish. But even yeah. culturally, I think as a, even I would say in HR and payroll, we need to change the way we label things. So quite often I see systems label it as lost time. Why is it lost time? It's not lost at all. It's an mm. obligation to give people holiday leave. You're required to by law. Why is that described in such a negative way? So I think it's sort of, you know, if it was recovery time or refresh time would be better, but why is it lost time? No, I agree. I think also there's, you mentioned that people often say they haven't had the time, particularly stakeholders that whine about it. I would argue that you always have the time if you have the motivation. And I think that's because it's not an obligation. If it's, if you're really motivated to do something, we find the time to do anything we're really motivated to do. So we've got to try and trigger those motivations to make it happen. And a more productive workforce should be that trigger. You know, a refreshed workforce will result in a more happier workforce, more retention, easier to attract staff, more productive. And you know, people need to understand that they're the benefits, really. A couple of things have, have, have popped in to the box. Um, so I'm going to read those out. Uh, one is related back to HMRC. I called them for a personal tax code error. They put the phone down on me. This is an absolutely disgusting way to treat your customer. I am making a complaint. By the way, my tax code still has not been corrected. Sorry to hear about that one, Carl. Um, interesting your comment, uh, Simon, someone said, no more miners fortnight, Tina. Um, someone said, I work for multi-academy trust with 13 schools. The majority of teams and buildings are closed for the summer. As we grow, we gain more teams working full year, but senior colleagues also need the same breathing space. Payroll and some of HR are now full year. I agree it makes, except, it makes it exceptionally hard for payroll to navigate coverage for items such as back approvals when the cycle still needs to function. Absolutely right there, David. Uh, and last but not least, and something I, I mentioned earlier uh, for those working in the sole roles, this is I work alone in payroll and complete all of my work before I get away so I can turn off. It's the only way I can do it. Taking holiday takes a lot of work and a lot of planning. Um, and interestingly, Jessica's just said, I've had a cold this week and I'm on holiday next week. I'm hoping to get the illness out of the way first. Well, I hope you do, Jessica. Fingers crossed. Let's move over to Andy. Any pensions updates we need to be aware of, Andy, to, 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 to bring the audience up to speed with any changes that are happening in the world of pensions? I had it on mute because the dog was barking. <laughs> but she is stopped now. Um, the, yes, I suppose, yes, a couple of things. One is the pensions dashboard. You might have seen that the pension providers, those with the pension data, need to connect to the dashboard. Um, by the 31st of October 26. So all pension providers need to make sure to get their systems in place, the data's all correct and all that sort of stuff by that, by in next so that ideally um, the pension providers will be ready to go live with a dashboard. So they've been given this date, the 31st of October, to connect to the dashboard. And they'll have a staging date given to them, which is a date by which they should connect. But they've got until the 31st of October 2026. So the staging date, a bit like automatic enrollment, will be the date by which we'd like them to connect. 
but it's in guidance, it's not legislation. And 31st of October 26 is the date, the last day by which they must have their system connected to the dashboard system. In terms of the dashboard going live, that isn't the 31st of October. I mean, it could be possibly, but that'll be down to the Secretary of State to determine when the dashboard will go live. And there's various criteria such as the dashboard should have the most number of people, the pension schemes connected, and it should be safe and everything works properly and all those sort of things. So we just wait for the, uh, I think it's called a dashboard availability point, the live date for the dashboard. So that's all coming up. Um, watch this space. From payroll perspective, that's more to do with the fact that as pension schemes get nearer to the deadline, they're going to ideally not wait until the deadline. Um, they'll be checking their data, make sure they've got complete sets of data. So you may end up getting requests from pension providers to the employer, and the employer will obviously ask the payroll team, maybe the payroll bureau, for information going back quite a few years, potentially, or HR may be impacted. So there's that aspect. Obviously, the 2017 review, where they're looking to reduce the automatic enrollment age down from 22 to 18, and the lower threshold from the current rates down to nil is being the bill to do that the private members bill is going through parliament and it's just had its second reading in the house of lords it'll go to committee stage third reading then it'll come back to the house of commons and they'll look at the any changes that have been made and eventually it will go royal assent and and be law and then at some point DWP will in conjunction and most likely be following a consultation with us all, we'll work out when the changes to automatic enrollment age trigger and the lower threshold going to nil will take effect and how they will take effect. So watch this space as well. So it's all going on in the background. Um, the, the Mansion House speech, you might have come across that. Um, he, the, um, the minister... Thank you. <laughs> Spoke about that. And he, he, he mentioned about pensions. So he's talking about pension providers who have lots of money um, on invested in their schemes to consider investing that money in unlisted in, um, um, organizations, 5%. So there's lots. Have a look at just Google Mansion House speech and you'll see about value for money for schemes, VC schemes, collected fine contribution schemes, super funds and all that sort of stuff, which is all ongoing. And um, from a payroll perspective, interesting, not significant in terms of it won't op affect the operation apart from value for money where some pension schemes may be deemed not providing value for money if they don't change to provide value for money tpr will close them down and their members will transfer to a scheme that is providing value for money so you may end up with a one pension scheme operating at the moment and you end up having to have a new pension scheme in place so that's probably an update for me sorry any thought on timing? We don't know. Is it likely that these changes won't be April 24 and more likely I don't think later? April 24. I believe there's going to be consultation in autumn by DWP. So April 25, I would have thought would be the earliest. But April 26, maybe. Depends what the consult, depends what comes out, doesn't it? And how easy it is to do the change. Will it be all in one go? Will they do a phased concept? I don't know. Yeah. So do you think 
yeah, do you think rates and contributions thresholds will be frozen again for the third year? I would have thought so, but that's just my guess. It's a personal view because obviously TPR can't comment on DVP policy. <laughs> um, but you, why would you increase the threshold only to then knock it back down at yeah. some point? But how that knocking back down happens, we just need to see. So please, when the consultation comes out, feed in because otherwise there'll be a DVP maybe not as well focused on how payroll operates approach to it yeah i did one thing to say um because someone has just come to the door which i need to go and speak to <laughs> so let me do this <laughs> the drugs working from home um is we've had a few inspections whereby the employer is yeah. putting the communications letters and you can you can send things to a portal but that isn't given and you need to make sure the individual accesses that letter on the portal to say that you've given it so if you've got a self-service approach and you're using the self-service to to put letters communi AE communications postponement letters and stuff if the individual isn't accessing that letter they haven't been given it it hasn't been met we always advise emails or attachment to an email or physically give them the letter. Anyway, I, I have to go. So <laughs> I'm sorry. Thank you, Andy. Well, I want to highlight, Be back in I want to highlight some of the SD World Academy events we've got coming up. Uh, for those that want to find out more about National Minimum Wage, there's an advanced session coming up on the 15th of September. On the 8th of September, there's another session on pensions and payroll. Um, you can sign up to these at www.sdworks.co.uk forward slash academy. Uh, there's actually a special edition webinar on the complex area of holiday payroll, which we've just been discussing, uh, hosted by PQT's very own Simon Parsons. And that's going to take place on Friday, August the 4th. So an opportunity for you guys to sign up to that as well. And there's obviously additional uh, seminars on the back of that one. So if you are interested in signing up to the SD Works Academy, I recommend you do. Um, and you'll have an expert session with Mr. Simon Parsons to lead you through those sessions. And we have actually had a question come in as well, all the way from Ghana, West Africa. Uh, someone who regularly joins the show has asked the following question. Going to come to you for this one, Richard. I know you're going to have a view on it. With the emergence of AI, will payroll be replaced? Not yet. <laughs> Do you want short answers or long answers? Not yet. A clever payroll department will use it to improve and to focus. But obviously, how long's a piece of string? We've all we've all only got a certain amount of time before the robots take over the world. So uh, <laughs> <laughs> I think if I was putting put my sense in worth it, it would be, you know what, payroll people, lots of systems are improving processes, but they're working harder than ever before. So uh, the role might change, but um, I think the payroll industry on the whole uh, I'm not finding their roles being replaced. I find they're working harder than ever and doing getting more involved in more things than they ever have done before. So it may replace elements. I can't ever see it replacing payroll completely. Um, Lou, what's your view on that question? Um, AI can only but improve our jobs. You know, the menial tasks, the ones that people label us as would touch a button, they can move the automation and free us up to do better value roles and jobs within the payroll team and within a payroll business 
um, to me, um, we should always be looking for making the improvements and getting them in sooner. It's nothing to be afraid of. It's definitely nothing to be frightened of. We should embrace it so that we can move away from what we've always done it that way. So, I mean, I'm all for automation. The more, the merrier and allowing people to develop other skills that are needed. Yeah, I'm hearing more and more bureaus, especially really focusing now on robotics um, in relation to supporting their process and the number of projects ongoing currently around that whole area is uh, is quite impressive. I mean, I think there's a there's an opportunity here, maybe. Maybe AI can't replace payroll, but maybe it can replace the HMRC. We might see some improvements in their service. <laughs> maybe maybe, that's, maybe we're thinking about the question the wrong way around. Perhaps they could improve this if we all go <laughs> and robots do it instead. Well, I think they tried it, um, but it's got a little bit of work to go, hasn't it? So I've got to say, before I had that call the other week, uh, um, you know, the thing was try the auto, try the standard routes. That was the advice I was given. Try the standard routes and see how you get on. Uh, so I did the online robotic uh, with my questions to see what happened and uh, gave up after about 20 minutes before the three o'clock. So I started this about 2.40 because it just kept on taking me round in circles. So um, I kept on getting responses telling me how to claim child benefit, which was interesting because I don't have a child under 16 <laughs> or in full-time education. Um, and my question had nothing to do with child benefit. But it did. So, so will it eventually? I think I think for normality it will help. But um, I I imagine I don't know about Richard and Lou, but I I think they probably have the view the excitement of payroll is in the nuance uh, things around the edge, which I think uh, uh, AI will have a long way to go before it knows what to do. Uh, the other struggle that I find that happens in most AI at the moment is it doesn't understand the concept of timing. So quite often in payroll, we're in a virtual world. So we're not talking about now, we're talking about a future point or a past point and it struggles. Now, is that because it can't deal with it? And I think the answer is potentially no. I think it's the people who are designing it can't yet deal with it because they don't understand the concept so quite often it's an element of the knowledge of the people creating it needs to be much stronger than it is you know what i think this show answers the question to a certain degree well we've got the you know real experts here in the world of payroll and this payroll question time is very much based around the nuances you talk about you know understanding how something is written how it can, how it can be applied it's often not not as binary as we think so uh, I think that's where AI is in particular is going to struggle and we're always going to need to be able to contextualize what's in front of us, which is something that robots can't do. So I think, um, yeah, in agreement with everyone, it's going to replace aspects of the, of the monotonous tasks and the automatous tasks that we can do. But ultimately, uh, no, it's, it's not, in my opinion, uh, for what it's worth, going to replace oh, the right. world of payroll. So quick question, quick far round before we close off today. What are people doing, if anything at all, to celebrate National Payroll Week, which is the 4th to the 8th of September? Lou, are you doing anything with your team or anything you're going to, you're planning for, for National Payroll Week? I think we're going to have a party in the office. will be the aim. 
and um, obviously um, CIPP um, have the National Payroll Week kick-off um, over in the Sky Garden, and I hope to be attending it. I sadly can't go. I'll have to decline my invitation. But I was there last time, and it was a fantastic event. So anyone going, definitely take it up and go along. It's a, it's a cracking venue and a really good event. We know that, of course, SD Works are holding a webinar on pensions and payrolls. That's on the 8th of September, if you saw that in the SD Works Academy link. Uh, Simon, anything else that you're aware of that may be happening in the world of SD Works for National Fair Week? Well, as I say, I'm a remote home worker, so I don't really appear in the offices that much, especially since COVID came on. They do tend to hold uh, rallies, cake sales, all sorts of things. So there tends to be a, an element of um, social. Uh, and I don't think we get it enough at the moment because we're all now home workers. But uh, hopefully opportunities of social interaction together to actually remember who each other Obviously, are. And build up those social interaction. Well, cool. yeah, <laughs> I probably get. Well, I'm de as Lou said, I'll be down in London on the Monday. I think the CIPP are running a number of events that day as well, which is great. I'm sure some of the others will be holding stuff that week uh, as well. So it's actually going to be a very busy week. Good, good. And good. Richard? Yeah, so we partner with CIPP, uh, obviously, uh, as part of Payroll Week. Um, so I will also be there on Monday, I suspect, um, if I'm not somewhere abroad. Um, and principally, we have a number of um, promotions, but also uh, a number of sessions and items very similarly, obviously, to CIPP that week uh, to really engage with the industry. So uh, it's a really important week now and it's gaining and gaining. Um, you know, I remember the yeah. very first one where putting a few balloons up was the game, but that's obviously uh, not the form anymore. Well, it's been going since 1998. I think the last numbers I, I heard is we've paid 33 million employees in the UK and it, the, the, the government collects 376 billion, I think was the last number I saw. So I think it's an industry that we, you know, we need to celebrate what we do. And I think it's absolutely why we do that. And it's, as you say, it's gaining momentum. Uh, Rachel's asked, how can I sign up to other sessions during September? So I'm not sure if this is to PQT or the Academy. Uh, Rachel, if it does, go to sdworks.co.uk forward slash pqt for September. Our next episode will be on the 28th of September. You should see that on the screens in front of you. For the Academy, it's sdworks.co.uk Academy. Um, and if it's related to National Payroll Week, go to the CIPP website. They have a landing page dedicated to National Payroll Week with videos of what people did in 2022. Um, you can download a free celebration pack, which you can distribute with your team. And, I think there's recommendations of writing to your local minister, uh, local councils and things as well, so if they can get involved. Uh, definitely loads of information at the CRPP website. Do take a look at that, and you can sign up to some of the webinars and sessions that they're running as well during that same week. There'll be lots going on. So uh, I think LinkedIn will go a bit mad with the hashtags choose payroll and hashtags uh, NPW23. So I look forward to seeing those when I get back from my own holidays, which just leaves me to say a huge thank you today to Richard George, Simon Parsons, Lou Gray, and Annie Nichols, who obviously has had to leave us early. Uh, I wish you all a fantastic August. I'm going to be away in France, probably, hopefully not. And um, I look forward to bringing, coming back for the next session on the 28th of September. Thank you, everyone, for joining us today. That's all for this episode of the Payroll Podcast. I hope you enjoyed our discussion today and gained valuable insights and inspiration to advance your payroll career or your payroll operation. 
If you haven't already, please, please do subscribe to the show so you never miss a future episode. And if you found this podcast helpful, please take a moment to leave us a little review on your preferred podcast platform. It's your feedback that really helps me to improve the show and of course, attract new listeners so we can continue to raise the profile of the payroll industry for all. Finally, if you know anyone who could benefit from this payroll podcast, please do share it with them. Let's spread the word and build a vibrant community of payroll professionals worldwide. Thank you, of course, for listening. My name is Nick Day. Please do look me up on LinkedIn and send me a connection request. In the meantime, I look forward to being with you again on the next episode of the Payroll Podcast real soon.